God, you are the author of salvation. You have written our names into your story by your grace. Your son has redeemed us and has taken those names to the cross. And now your spirit is our counselor and comforts us as those who belong to you and keeps us united to heaven. As we just sang about, Lord, we're, we're people that are unclean. We've got unclean hands. As we just read together and confessed together from Psalm 51, we are born in iniquity. Like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, we live among a people of unclean hands. We give praise to the God of Jacob that he has sent his son to give his life on the altar so that the burning hot coal of his holy blood would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And now, Lord, we are guiltless and we are grace-covered. And we thank you for that. Father, give us understanding from your word this morning. I pray, God, that you would use me. I am a feeble man. I'm a weak man. Lord, intimidated even by the prospect of preaching this message. But Lord, the strength that we need is found in you. The strength to understand, the strength to preach, the strength to act. And I pray, Father, that... We would not be so caught up this morning in identity politics, that we would not be so caught up in this morning in our feelings, that we would, God, come to your word and hear what you have to say. We need your wisdom this morning, Father, and your word tells us that when we pray in faith for wisdom, you will pour it out on us. So we pray that you would do just that now. God, get me out of the way. Let your word be at the forefront. I pray that I'd be forgotten today, that your word would be remembered as we leave here, and that you would do your work in your people through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you take a trip to the Rockies in Colorado, there's a mountain range called the Elk Mountains. And the jewel of the Elk Mountains are two twin peaks that stick their necks above the rest of the range that is around them. And those peaks are called the Maroon Bells. They are the two most photographed mountain peaks in the United States. They stand at 14,000 feet above sea level. All summer long, snow remains on the mountains. And they are called the Maroon Bells because when the light hits them right... They have that Virginia Tech shade of red. The maroon bells are beautiful. But I want to tell you this morning about a different set of maroon bells that are not beautiful. I want to tell you about two other twin peaks that are not descriptively beautiful but deplorable. I want to tell you not about physical mountain peaks but metaphorical mountain peaks. And I'm going to speak to the heights of our nation's iniquity in our history and in our present. The greatest stains of sin that we bear on our hands. The maroon bells of American immorality. American chattel slavery. And America's twisted history with aborting human life. And when the light of the wisdom of God's word hits them we see them for what they really are. Ours is a nation formed with Judeo-Christian values. I know 
There's plenty of philosophy of the age of enlightenment mixed in, but the reality is is that when the first pilgrims arrived, they had Geneva Bibles under their arms, the Bibles of the Protestant Reformation. While many of our founding fathers were indeed deists and theistic rationalists whose beliefs were more rooted in Athens and Greek philosophy than Jerusalem and biblical truth, they were raised in Anglican, Presbyterian, and Congregational churches. The impact of the Bible on the DNA of this nation is particularly evident in the Declaration of Independence, which states that all men are created equal and have certain unalienable rights. And yet the golden frame of morality rooted in biblical principles that set the ethical boundaries of our nation have not always been lived up to. Far from it. Human dignity and human rights based on the fact that we are all created in the image of God have been transgressed. There have been these times in which we have created subhuman classes of people for the purposes of convenience and economic advantage. Behold, the inverse awful bells of slavery and abortion. Both rise up out of the soil of a culture of death and result in a bewildering loss of human life, sanctioned by supposedly civil laws. In the case of chattel slavery, praise God, emancipation has been declared and we have said no more and never again abolished. But in the case of aborting pre-born human beings, the abolition of abortion is far from achieved. And yet these things are not to be handled and talked about in our wisdom. We need to turn to the wisdom of the Lord. And so we do that this morning by going to the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom, And we're going to be in chapter 8. I'm going to read just a couple of the verses, and then we will walk through some of the rest of it. Proverbs 8, verse 35. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Proverbs 8 depicts wisdom as a woman standing at a crossroads, calling out like an open-air street preacher. Does not wisdom call, Proverbs 8.1 says, does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Wisdom is depicted as a woman in a poetic sense because the Hebrew word for wisdom is feminine. But the wisdom that calls out is the wisdom of God. The voice that is raised is the wisdom of God personified. Wisdom calls out to foolish people and beckons for common sense to be employed and applied. Proverbs 8.5 O simple ones, another way of saying fools, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. She tells the listener how things really are and how things really work, despite what they may think. 
Proverbs 8, verses 6 and 7. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. From my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. True wisdom, despite what people might try and argue, is opposed to the abomination that is wickedness. And the perceptive, the hearing, they listen. They don't close their ears to the message. You see this in Proverbs 8, verses 8 and 9. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. And when the perceptive listen and they walk in the paths of wisdom, they will enjoy her fruits. You see this in verse 14. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. Verse 19, my fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. Verse 21 talks about granting an inheritance to those who love wisdom. Wisdom fills the treasuries of those that love her. And where does the sermon of wisdom begin? What is the intro of wisdom as she preaches at the crossroads. Well, it's always the same place. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 1.7 says, is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So those who fear the Lord, they will love knowledge. They will hate foolishness. Those who fear the Lord will hate evil. Which is why 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Those who fear the Lord love wisdom. Those who love wisdom fear the Lord. And the wise who fear the Lord find life. They obtain the Lord's gracious hand upon them. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But, but those who hate wisdom, they do not find life. Instead, to their own detriment, they love death. Which is exactly what verse 36 is saying in Proverbs 8. He who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. And so those who hear wisdom's voice at the crossroads have a choice to make. You're going to love wisdom and walk the path of life, or you're going to hate wisdom and walk the path of death. Will you despise wisdom and love death? In the early 1860s, our nation stood at the crossroads in the shadow of the first maroon bell of immorality, chattel slavery. Here's Frederick Douglass speaking about it. In thinking of America, I sometimes find myself admiring her bright blue skies, her grand old woods, her fertile fields, her beautiful rivers, her mighty lakes and star-crowned mountains. My rapture was soon checked when I remembered that all is cursed with the infertile spirit of slaveholding and wrong. When I remember that with the waters of her noblest rivers, the tears of my brothers are born to the ocean, disregarded and forgotten, that her most fertile fields drink daily the warm blood of my outraged sisters. I am filled with unutterable loathing. If you understand Douglas's feelings in 
the early 1860s, you have to understand what slavery was. Sometimes I think we just think of slavery as kind of this big thing that was wrong, but it's helpful to get down into the the crevices of it so that we remember just how awful it was and so we are not tempted to do this sort of thing again. Slaves would typically be brought into the world in a one-room house equated to nothing more than a shack. In the winter, it was freezing cold. In the summer, it was hot and disease-ridden and it stunk. The people who lived in these shacks often got diseases like pneumonia and typhus and cholera and lockjaw and tuberculosis. A child who was a slave, if they made it to the age of 12, were sent to the fields where they would work. Their teeth were usually rotten. They they were often suffering from worms or dysentery or malaria. Out of 100 slaves, only three would make it to 60 years old. Work was from sunup to sundown, 14 hours during certain parts of the year. If it were the time of the month where it was a full moon, then the work carried on into the night. When slaves were traded on auction blocks, the black men and women were made to jump and dance to show how limber they were. They'd strip them naked for examining. They were poked and prodded before they were purchased. Their eyes and their teeth and their feet were checked for health like a rancher would examine cattle. One slave said they were examined the way a jockey would examine a horse. Each slave would be expecting to be sold at least once in their lives, but maybe twice or more. And for this reason, when preachers did slave weddings, they would change the vows to say, until death or distance do you part. How could these things have been? How could a nation that started with Geneva Bibles keep chattel slavery as a part of its initial heritage? I believe it's because of the genesis of our great nation, and I mean that. I believe we have a great nation. We ignored biblical wisdom when it came to the topic of slave trading and human bondage. The Bible is clear regarding the wisdom that should be applied to how we view the value of human life and other image bearers. Genesis 1.27 tells us that every human being is made in the image of God. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. That image bearing means that every single human being, everyone, possesses objective worth given to them by God in the act of their creation. And they reflect the worth of God as well. Paul makes it clear in Romans 1 that in humanity, and in all of creation, but particularly in the creation of humanity, we see the divine power of God on display. We see His relatable attributes reflected in our own. And so a person's ethnicity is just another reflection of the manifold wisdom and beauty of God. It should never be a cause for us looking at someone as being less than or subhuman. We should see our differences in our skin colors and our differences in our ethnicities, and we should should praise God for the, the beauty in His creation. Moreover, the Bible is clear about the practice of slave trading. Old Testament law classified man-stealing as worthy of death. Exodus 21.16, whoever steals a man and sells him, 
And anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That was the Old Testament law. The New Testament speaks to how the law relates to sinners. And listen to what it says. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. Now listen to what Paul says to Timothy. 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10. For the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Talking about people beating their parents, man, that's, that's, that's terrible, right? Murders, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and then right there in the midst of it, enslavers. Liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Greek word for enslaver literally means man-stealer or kidnapper. So these verses show us that only a wicked twisting of the scriptures could ever justify participation in the American slave trade and chattel slavery. And sadly, there were many who did just that, individuals who ignored the wisdom of the Bible. Individuals who made up a nation and for decades ignored the wisdom of God's word. A nation formed with Judeo-Christian values that failed to apply them rightly as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was held back from certain members of a free world that was not so free for everyone. Am I saying this to say that America is an evil nation? No, not buying into that narrative. We do have to be honest about the brutality of the maroon bell of chattel slavery that took us multiple generations to topple. Now some may wonder, why did it take so long? We may have a, very, a, a fairly sanitized view of our own history and think that the entire North was just filled with abolitionists and the South was just filled with passionate, bloodthirsty man-stealers and the South, man, they just should have listened to the North and all this would have been fixed real quick. But the reality is, is that all throughout the nation, there was a yielding and a giving in to the horrors of chattel slavery because of capitulating compromise. Thomas Jefferson claimed slavery was like a wolf that we were holding by the ear. Not really right to hold on to it, but man, it's too dangerous to let go of it. George Washington said, I'll never, I'll never buy another slave. But, he also said that slavery can only be ended through slow, imperceptible changes. Even the great Abraham Lincoln, as the Civil War began, was no abolitionist. He actually believed that the Constitution sanctioned slavery. He did not believe in the immediate end of slavery. And like Washington before him, he thought it could only be ended through gradual means. At one point, he even was putting forth a plan to free the slaves and ship them off to another nation where they would be colonized. Throughout the first years of the war, he refused to even meet with Frederick Douglass. It was not until August of 1863 that they were able to meet face to face when they discussed how black Union soldiers were being mistreated in the war. Union soldiers who, by the way, were not even allowed to fight in the war at the beginning of it. Now, obviously, Lincoln became an abolitionist. He, his heart changed regarding the wisdom on this issue. Even before meeting Douglas in person, he issued the Emancipation Proclamation. He was a fierce champion of the 13th Amendment, and Douglas came to love Lincoln so much that he actually called him the black man's president. And I believe Abraham Lincoln is one of the greatest presidents in our nation's history, 
His place on Rushmore is well-deserved. My point only is to say that the maroon bell of chattel slavery stood for so long because powerful men lacked the courage to fight for what was right and just. Capitulation to compromise leads to an ignorance regarding wisdom. Now in the case of the second maroon bell, the second bloody mountain of injustice in our history, the abortion of preborn babies, we can actually go backward and see that unlike slavery, it was not a part of our heritage at the start. In fact, the earliest accounts of colonial America show us that there were levels of justice being executed for crimes against the preborn. I'm going to tell you about a man named Captain William Mitchell, who, like John Bunyan, fought in the English Civil War. Unlike John Bunyan, he was a pretty awful person by all accounts. Mitchell left for England, or left England after the war for the New World, sailed with his wife, brought along 22 servants, one of which he convinced to come because he had eyes for her. Her name was Susan Warren, 21 years old. Upon arrival in Maryland, Mitchell claimed Warren owed him money and demanded that they would be intimate until she paid that money back. Made her sign a document saying she would be his servant, which of course included more than scrubbing floors. And it was not long before Susan Warren became pregnant by Captain Mitchell. He refused to marry her. She said as a Christian gentleman, he needed to make things right. He laughed it off and said, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are only a man and a pigeon. He was a renowned atheist. So what did Mitchell do? Leah Savis and Martin Olasky explain it in their excellent book, The Story of Abortion in America. Mitchell mixed an abortifacient, a potion that could kill the unborn child, with a poached egg and forced Warren to eat it. He said if she would not take it, he would thrust it down her throat, so she, so she, being in bed, could not withstand it. The potion apparently killed the child and caused Warren to lose much of her hair. Her skin erupted into boils and blains. Mitchell taunted her, How now hath your God helped you? Ah, thou mayst well believe anything that has told you such a thing as God. Oh, thou art a fool. Situation was brought to the attention of the authorities, and in 1652, Mitchell found himself in court. It is the first abortion case that we have solid records for on American soil when it came to being dealt with legally. He thought his political connections were going to keep him from getting in any trouble, but he was really quite wrong. He found himself on trial for atheism, imagine that, for blasphemy and for murder. Now in the end, he was found not guilty of murder. And this was only because the science was not as advanced as it is now. At that time, a woman would not be counted as truly pregnant until four months in when the quickening occurred, when she felt the baby kick. Before this, they would say there's really no way to know if the baby is alive in the womb. So that shows you how primitive the science was. And in light of that, Mitchell could claim that his abortifacient may well have not been the thing that killed the child that was in Warren. He could claim it could have been anything else that might have caused the child to perish before birth. He ended up being charged with scandalous behavior. He was barred from ever holding public office in the colonies. He was hit with a choice of a public whipping 
or pay a fine of 5,000 pounds of tobacco, which was about three and a half years of pay. Now, is 5,000 pounds of tobacco really anything compared to human life? Of course not. But what it shows is that from the start, our nation actually had no stomach for this. The lack of science might have saved Mitchell's hide, but even his being on trial speaks to the recognition of personhood in the womb by the earliest Marylanders. Susan Warren, by the way, received an allowance from Mitchell's wealth for the rest of her life, and she became a free woman in the New World. But when speaking to her affair and the pregnancy and the abortion that came afterward, she said it was a great sin to get it, but a greater to make it away. While science may have clouded things then, we cannot say that it has clouded things now. Just the opposite, actually. Personhood from conception is clearer than it's ever been. When the egg is fertilized and conception takes place, all the DNA that will make a person who they are is present. It's all there. Our ultrasounds are so advanced, we can detect the embryo at six weeks. Our ultrasounds can detect a heartbeat between the sixth and seventh week of pregnancy, sometimes even earlier. Now here's the deal. Until we had these machines, the thought process had not changed all that much since the time before the New Testament. For 1,600 years, the Western world was using ancient logic regarding pregnancy from Aristotle. Aristotle. In the 16th and 17th centuries, there were some minor discoveries that helped track prenatal development a bit more, but when we got ultrasound machines in the 20th century, everything changed. We realized that Aristotle's contention that there was no life for the first 46 days was wrong. The ultrasound machine, a gift to humanity by the grace of God, suddenly removed all the justification we might try and come up with for abortion. And what the ultrasound machine revealed is that God's wisdom was correct all along. The Lord's Word teaches us that all people are created equal and that they are of equal value as image bearers from conception just as the Lord's word showed us how evil chattel slavery was. Listen to the wisdom of the scriptures. We've read Psalm 139 this morning already. I'm going to read again verses 13 and 14. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Now, if you read that, I think the plain reading of the text is from the start From conception, he is knitting together the person in the womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Fearfully and wonderfully made by the giver of life. Human in the womb. The handiwork of God. The psalmist is expounding on how well God knows us and says that it is God who intimately governed our formation in the womb. Listen to God's law in Exodus 21, starting in verse 22. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, Hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. 
So God's civil law treated the murder of the unborn just like the murder of the born. And this should be no surprise to us. An image bearer is an image bearer, inside or outside of the womb. God hates unequal weights and measures. Unequal weights and measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord, Proverbs 20, verse 10 says. And so since God hates unequal weights and measures, it makes sense that his law would protect all image bearers. So when we take the wisdom of the word, along with the findings of the ultrasound machine, then we have to admit that it's no stretch to say that abortion is the murder of an image-bearing human being. A transgression of the natural law given to Noah. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. A transgression of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. A transgression of God's perfect wisdom. Proverbs 6, 16 and 17 says there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. So why don't we listen? Why is it that we developed the first commercially usable ultrasound machine in 1963, and yet, 10 years later, our nation declared legalized abortion a constitutional right? Shouldn't we have become even more protective over life at that point? Shouldn't we have been even more adamant than those, those original Marylanders who put Captain Mitchell on trial? How do we go backwards from Captain Mitchell's case to saying that abortion is a right that the Constitution demands to be in place? Why did the ultrasound machine not open the way for life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness to be fiercely defended by all Americans going forward? Shouldn't 1963 have been like 1863, 100 years before? A time where our nation would have made great strides toward seeing the lives of all men inside and outside of the womb be counted as sacred. All women be counted as sacred. Even if you look into early American feminism, the most heralded names were quite pro-life. Susan B. Anthony said that abortion filled her with indignation and awakened active antagonism in her. Feminist Jane Addams said the Spartans killed children physically infirm. Are we to go back to the days of Sparta? It is our duty to care for them. How did we go from that to 600,000 abortions a year minimum since Roe in 1973. I believe that the answer is found in the sexual revolution, which is still going on and is a fruit of America's national idolatry at the altar of self. A nation founded on objective truths that are self-evident shifted to being a nation shaped by subjective feelings and desires in an ideological revolution. In Carl Truman's book, A Strange New World, he lays out the philosophical path that we have unfortunately walked. Along with most of the West, we bought into the ideas of the French Enlightenment from men like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and René Descartes. Their teaching emphasized that final authority 
is not given to some objective truth outside of you, but to your inner feelings. Your inner feelings are the most true and pure guide. Marx came along and politicized these ideas, saying that moral codes in religion, which claim to be objective truth, manipulate people. They must be done away with if we're going to give humanity true freedom. And then Freud sexualized what Marx politicized and what the French Enlightenment thinkers romanticized. So what you do sexually is who you are. It is your identity. It's not your behavior. It's your identity. And the end result is a sexual ethic that says, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. It's my truth. You have no right to keep me from my identity. We've seen this play out in our culture at an alarming rate. When Barack Obama ran for president, he said he did not support gay marriage, only civil unions. By 2015, he had the White House covered in a projected rainbow flag to celebrate the national legalization of gay marriage. One year later, this may surprise you, Donald Trump became the first president to win office supporting gay marriage as settled law. You can look that up, it's true. 71% of the nation reportedly supports gay marriage now, including 49% of Republicans. That toothpaste is out of the tube and washed down the sink. These things are not disconnected. Why did we become more likely to abort pre-born humans after we got the technology that clearly showed us the life that is being taken? Because Rousseau and Descartes and Marx and Freud convinced us through institutionalized lies that consequence free sex is our right. Here is C. Ben Mitchell talking about this in a book that he wrote for the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. He says, with this new worldview coming into vogue, attitude about abortion also mutated. Narcissistic hedonism fanned the flames of sexual promiscuity and the so-called free love movement, which was neither free nor loving in reality. Sexual liberation meant that not only individuals could choose for themselves if and when they had sex, but they also could uh, determine for themselves whether and how they should deal with the consequences of sex. The individuals involved are self-fulfilled, indulging their own desires and not harming others. The behavior was viewed as permissible. The rest of culture be damned. But there were harm to others. More people have died from abortion than the entire U.S. population in 1880. Just take that in for a second. It is an awful bloody maroon bell hanging over our nation. It is the product of a narcissistic, self-worshipping, sex-obsessed culture that demands self-gratification on our terms, no matter who is hurt in the process. And so we, as a people, have spurned the wisdom of God pridefully and treated it hatefully as it calls out and preaches from the crossroads. And as a result, we get a culture of death. Those who hate me love death. So what is the answer to this sort of madness? How do we as the church respond to the culture of death? Well, first of all, we need to know where our hope is found. We need to know where our hope is found for sexually promiscuous people. 
We need to know where hope is found for little babies. There may be people in this room hearing me talk this morning who have on some level participated in abortion. These are hard things to hear. You may dread this Sunday every year in our church, but I want to tell you where hope is found. We see hope in the midst of, wisdom message, of wisdom's message in Proverbs 8. Listen to what is said here. The Lord possessed me, speaking about wisdom, at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there was no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped. Before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or, for, uh, or the first dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle in the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limit. So that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight. Rejoicing before him always. Wisdom is depicted as existing before creation, being superior to creation, and being preeminent. Wisdom has intimate knowledge of the created order, and wisdom is there at the dawn of creation. Wisdom predates Adam and his children made from dust and bone. Wisdom is the builder of creation. Who does this sound like? Who is the only begotten? Who is the only brought forth of God? Who was with God and was God before creation? We know the answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Paul goes on to say, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. When Paul says that He is the firstborn of all creation, the Greek word there means preeminent. The way that a firstborn son is preeminent in a household. It's not saying that Jesus is the first thing God created, as a Jehovah's Witness might try to tell you. By the way, in the Psalms, David is called the firstborn king of Israel. We know he's not the firstborn king of Israel. Saul came before him. He's not even the firstborn in his family, but he was the preeminent king of Israel. Jesus is the preeminent, only begotten Son of God, who is the ultimate revelation of God, and he has revealed the Father. He is the wisdom of God and human flesh. Paul says it clearly in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Before the fall, God's wisdom was perfectly operating in the world. There was harmony between God and human. There was harmony between human and human. There was harmony between human and creation. But after the fall, harmony was lost. And because of sin, humanity lost track of God's wisdom. 
But Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, the only begotten Son, has lived and has died an atoning death and is resurrected and has ascended and He is the mediator who restores the harmony. He reconciles us to God through the blood of the cross. He reconciles us to one another through the blood of the cross. And in the end, He will reconcile us to creation on the new earth as we live in the harmony that we are made for. And He's the only one who can do it. So who knows him? Who in this world knows Jesus? Who knows the wisdom of God? It's the church. It's the church, right? The only institution on earth who has had the wisdom of God revealed to her is the Lord's church. Which means the only institution on earth who truly has the remedy for the culture of death is the church. We have the gospel. We have Jesus. We have the wisdom of God. The world hates His wisdom and loves death. We love the wisdom of God. We love life. Therefore, the church must lead the way in establishing a culture of life. You look under the hood of the abolition of chattel slavery in the West, you'll find Christian leadership at the forefront. Whether we're talking Newton and Wilberforce or we're talking Frederick Douglass, it was believers who led the way. The church that led the way. If we are to abolish abortion, it will have to be the same cannot capitulate to compromise. It took courage for believers to stand up and say, whatever the cost, there must be equal rights for image-bearing people no matter the color of their skin. There were people who would twist God's Word and bend principles to try and fit chattel slavery into a biblical box. And it took courage for preachers and parishioners alike to say, you are wrong and this is sin. And now the same courage is going to be required if we are to stand for the equality of all people, pre-born and born. But if we call for justice in this nation out of one side of our mouths, we have to call for pure and undefiled religion in the church out of the other. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This year, our Baptist neighbors to the west, Kentucky Baptists, and our Baptist neighbors to the south, North Carolina Baptists, called for the abolition of, of abortion and resolutions passed in their state conventions. Those are resolutions they have sent to the magistrate, sent to the governor, sent to legislatures to say, this is where Baptists in our state stand. And in the same resolutions in which Kentucky and North Carolina Baptists called for the abolition of abortion, they also said this, resolved that we, our churches, and our ministries love both born and pre-born neighbors as ourselves. By continuing steadfastly in our commitment 
to pursue pure and undefiled religion towards both mothers and children prayerfully, financially, and practically through prenatal and postnatal care in pregnancy resource centers, counseling, fostering, adoption, and other available means. That's out of the resolution of the Kentucky Baptist. The statement from North Carolina is nearly identical. Yes, we cannot compromise on the value of life, but we also cannot compromise on neighborly love, which we have been called to. So what do we do? I want to give you two challenges as we close up. I know I've gone long. We'll be done. Number one, join in on what we do, what we're already doing. We are a house of refuge church through Love Life USA. If they hear of a woman or a family in our area, their organization, who wants to choose life for her child and needs help, then they will connect that woman and that family to our church body. So as of today, we stand ready and waiting. And if and when that time comes, we are ready to act. As we close the sermon here in just a moment, the leader of our Life Matters ministry, Brittany Olenberger, is going to come up with me, and we are together, with all of us standing, going to read the House of Refuge covenant about what we will do and will not do if that situation comes to us. And when we talk about what we will do, we're here to meet needs. It might be pretty radical. We might be talking about providing housing for someone for a while. Might be talking about quite a bit of money that we are putting down on the table and saying this is what it takes to save the life of a child, an image bearer, a human being. And that women who are in pregnancy crisis, if they come to us, they will find this to be a place of refuge for them. A place of safety, a place where God's wisdom is abounding. A culture of life. Secondly, we are firm supporters of our local pregnancy resource center, Kiernet Peninsula, who save hundreds and hundreds of lives every year. They opened up a brand new, beautiful facility on Warwick this year. If you go inside, I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. And you can, you can request a tour from them. They will let you come in and see the building. And I encourage you to do that. And if you go in and you turn right and you go up the stairs, on the wall there is a tree sculpture that was hung there. And on each of the leaves of the tree, one of the major donors that helped build that building has a name carved into the leaves. And one of those leaves reads, Seaford Baptist Church, Seaford, Virginia. Because when we paid off our debt for this building, and we had money left over, we wanted to commit some of that to missions. Half of it we gave to the Peninsula Rescue Mission to build a shelter for women. The other half, $5,000, we gave to CareNet to build that building. We want to press on in faithfulness in that partnership. We start our baby bottle drive today. With every penny you give, we're providing top-notch prenatal and postnatal care for mothers and babies through CareNet. If you go and Google, just Google abortion on the peninsula or where can I get an abortion? You will see Planned Parenthood come up, and you will see the Peninsula Center for Women 
whatever it's called, that is, uh, that is located in Newport News, that is open on Thursdays. On Thursdays, you should pray. You should pray every Thursday that women would choose life because that's when that place is open. But you will also see Alcove Health. That's CareNet. That's the name that they use on Google so that women will actually click on it, see what it's all about, and they will find out all these free services provided to them. And they can go in there and they can get the care that we provide, and that churches like us provide, and Christians provide through donations, through offerings. So join on, 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 on what we are doing. But secondly, I want to challenge you to pray about what you would do. What is God calling your family to? What is God calling your household to? What is God calling you to? We have families in this church who have responded to the culture of death by, by getting themselves ready to foster and have fostered. Maybe God would call you to consider being a foster family? Could God be calling you to prepare your family to adopt? I know that's not a small thing to ask you to pray about, but could he be doing that? Could he be calling you to commit a sacrificial gift above and beyond your weekly tithe to CareNet or to Love Life USA? Maybe you would like to talk more about all this because you feel motivated by the Lord this morning. Maybe you would like to know more about justice for preborn lives and the abolition of abortion. Maybe you would like to know more about how you can engage with senators and congressmen and women and how you could engage with the state legislature and how you could engage with the governor, how you could speak to the magistrate. I've actually got a little half sheet that's on our baby bottle table this morning. You can pick up, and it's got the contact information for those elected officials so that you can indeed engage them, as well as some websites that have information on them. And if you're not sure what God's calling you to do, here's what you can do. It costs nothing. So get down on your knees and pray. Say, God, give me wisdom. Show me what I am to do to respond to the culture of death. God says when we pray in faith for wisdom, he gives it. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So pray in faith and ask God for the wisdom on what to do to protect life. We have seen one maroon bell toppled and abolished. May we see another let the bloodshed end. Let justice roll down like rivers and righteousness like a mighty stream. Wisdom calls at the crossroads. Will we listen? Let us answer the culture of death with the culture of life. I'm going to ask Brittany to come and the band to come right now. And as they're coming, I do want to reiterate, if you're here and you've participated in abortion in any way, God's grace is greater than sin. Participation in abortion is not an unforgivable sin. Jesus died for it just like he died for all the other sins that he suffered for as he was pressed under the wine press of God's wrath. Satan wants you to walk around carrying immense amounts of guilt. I urge you to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and understand that his grace is sufficient to save and to remove that guilt. If you're a believer, you don't need to live with that guilt. He paid your fine. It's done. It's finished. Rest in his love. Rejoice in his forgiveness.
Satan wants every one of us to think we are defined by our worst failures. He's a liar. Turn to Jesus. And you will find grace there. I'm going to pray and then Brittany will come and we'll read this covenant together. Father God, don't let us just say these words here in a moment. Help us to commit to them. And we may be resolved to be the sort of neighbors that we're saying we are in this covenant. That this church, God, would truly be a house of refuge and a culture of life. We thank you for your son who is the wisdom of God. I pray, God, if anyone does not know him, they would turn to him. If anyone does know him, but they've been walking around with all sorts of guilt because of something regarding this issue, that again, they would turn to him and they would find guilt removed. May grace reign in this place, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brittany's going to come. Let's stand together. Then after we do this, we are going to sing. Here's what we believe. If you find yourself in an unplanned pregnancy, please know that being pregnant is not a sin. And the child you carry is not a punishment, it is a blessing. God is knitting this child in your womb. You may have made a sinful decision that led to this pregnancy, or you may have been sinned against, but we want you to know you are loved, and we will do whatever it takes to help you carry and care for this precious child before and after birth. We can never support or encourage a woman to have an abortion because the child you carry is made in the image of God and is intrinsically valuable and loved by God. You need to know how we will respond. Here's what we won't do. This church family will not gossip about you, shame you, or abandon you. This is a house of refuge. We will not allow for the family of God to harm one another with words or actions contrary to the love of God as revealed in his word. Here's what we will do. We will do everything in our power to remove whatever obstacles stand in the way of you having this child. There are people in this church ready to mentor you, throw you a baby shower, and connect with you with resources inside or outside of the church, such as a local pregnancy center. We will also hold men accountable for living out their calling to provide for and protect women and children. Finally, if you've ever had an abortion in your past, we want you to know that abortion is not an unforgivable sin. Whoever confesses and forsakes their sin finds mercy. If you have never gone through an abortion recovery Bible study, we will be happy to connect you to one so that you can walk in complete healing and freedom. This is who we are, church. Let's sing to the Lord.